Welcome back to the program. As we watch events unfold in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt, one thing should become abundantly clear, that revolutions are very, very difficult. To change the direction and fate of nations does not come without much pain and sacrifice, and in fact, usually doesn't work out. That's why when we look at our own American revolution, we should realize what an unusual success it was, and why it was not by any means inevitable and what very special men it took to succeed in the cause. This is the backdrop for Pulitzer Prize-winning author Joseph Ellis' new book, Revolutionary Summer. Joseph Ellis won the Pulitzer Prize for Founding Brothers, his portrait of Thomas Jefferson. He's also the author of American Sphinx, which won the National Book Award. And it is my pleasure to welcome Joseph Ellis back to this program to talk about Revolutionary Summer, the birth of American independence. Joe Ellis, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. One of the things that confuses us, I suppose, about the American Revolution is because of the way we've learned it and the mythology that has grown up over the years, we think of it as very inevitable. And in fact, as you portray that summer of 1776, it was something that was very chaotic, very improvisational as it came together. Yeah, I would say that there's no event in American history which looks as inevitable in retrospect as the American Revolution, which was, in fact, at the time, um, highly problematic and unlikely. Um, And you're absolutely right. One of my goals in the book is to try to recover a sense of the chaos and confusion uh, uh, that that enveloped everybody in the late spring and summer of of 1776. Um, um, And one of the one of the points that I'm making that's somewhat different um, is that if you look at uh, political opinion in the in the American colonies, it it changes very quickly in the spring. Uh, up until then, while most of New England is ready to rock and roll, if you will, because uh, they've been occupied by the British Army, um, the rest of the colonies are very reluctant to declare war on the most uh, powerful military uh, nation on earth, and um, and they think that's suicidal, so they're searching for a, a diplomatic way out. And um, and uh, the story I tell is why that doesn't happen, and why um, eventually British the British uh, government makes the biggest mistake in the history of British statecraft, I think, in enforcing the military solution. And in fact, there were two very powerful sides right up until, really, as you tell the story, right up until May of 1776. Uh, one side, which was the more radical side, led in, in part by John Adams, and the other, right. the, the the side that really didn't want to go to war, led by people like John Dickinson. And they were the majority. Um, uh, they had the votes, uh, or put it the other way, Adams didn't have the votes. And um, uh, and what happens is that, well, on the one hand, it is true that there's a pamphlet published in January that really has influence. That's the uh, Thomas Paine's common sense, but what makes that pamphlet have such impact is the context, and the context is this: the British have decided to send the largest amphibious force ever to cross the Atlantic, forty-two thousand men um, and over four hundred ships, um, to squash this rebellion in the cradle, and um, and it's in response to that military move that the colonies begin to sense that they have no option. Um, so, so the chemistry of the decision-making changes because of Britain's military commitment to, to uh, end this in a, in a violent and belligerent way. And, and why they decide that is one of the mysteries of, uh, 
of the, the story. I, I think there's a kind of version of the domino effect going on here, namely that if we let the colonies get away with this, um, what happens in uh, Scotland? What happens in Ireland? What happens in India? Um, uh, but um, And they really don't think they have to have a diplomatic solution because they believe they have such military power they can win this thing. Given that, given how committed the British were to this, and people like William Blackstone and others in Britain who really were concerned about the things you're talking about, was there any way to avoid this war, as many, including Dickinson, thought there might be? There was. It was obvious, in fact, to people on both sides, including Edmund Burke and William Pitt in England, and uh, Dickinson and even Jefferson uh, back in America. Um, the British would uh, allow the colonies to govern themselves in terms of uh, taxation and legislation, making their own laws. They would not impose Parliament's rules on them, but the colonists would acknowledge the power of the king and would remain in the empire for economic reasons. Um, in effect, they would have discovered the British Commonwealth a hundred years early. Um, that option was, the colonists proposed that, um, and the British rejected it. After the war gets going and things start to turn on them, the British say, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll reconsider, but then the Americans say it's too late. But um, that option was on the table and was rejected by the British. Talk a little bit about the, the, the radical forces, the forces led by, by Adams that really wanted to go to war, that thought that it was really critical. Adams is the leader of the radical faction. He's the, that rare hybrid. He's a kind of radical conservative because he's a radical on the issue of independence, um, but he's conservative in terms of what the political agenda will be once we're independent. Um, uh, the, the bulk of those people come out of New England and out of Massachusetts. The two Adamses, Sam and John, are the leaders of the radical faction. And the major reason they're ahead of everybody else is because the British have essentially occupied Massachusetts and shut down their government so that um, the, the New England states have felt the wrath of the British um, military power much more than anybody else. And they have, Adams is convinced that, um, as he says to Abigail, that everybody else is waiting for a messiah that will never come that the British are not going to acquiesce to American demands and that the he he sees where history is headed a little bit before everybody else. But it's because of their New England origins that they're they're poised to see this. Um and especially people like Dickinson uh from um Pennsylvania and other people from New York and even some from Virginia uh really want to only commit themselves to secession from the Empire at the very last resort. But once it became clear how big the invasion force was that the British were sending, public sentiment really started to change. It changed almost overnight. And they sent out this resolution to all the states, asked their colonies, asking them to rewrite their constitutions. This is in May. And we got the responses because the states, the government sent out to each of the towns and counties um, what they said. And that body of evidence is overwhelming that... Um, that the people say, you know, these are local townspeople in Massachusetts, 42 towns, let's say, in Massachusetts. Um, up until very recently, we would have never even considered uh, independence, but now it seems inevitable. We have no choice because, in effect, George III has declared independence of us. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and so it's a, it's a decision that happens quickly and not for constitutional reasons, not because, you know, rethinking their arguments on Parliament's power. It's for the military reasons that have been uh, imposed by the Britons um, on them. And they really think they have no other choice. At the same time, this political agenda has been going on that we've been talking about. There was a lot of military activity going on as well, which was in some ways even more chaotic initially. Yeah, the, the the British, you know, had occupied Boston, and the American army forms. It's actually a group of New England militia units that come to be regarded as the Continental Army uh, around Boston, and they eventually lay a siege. Washington is appointed commander of this group that eventually calls itself the Continental Army, and that that you know, when you when you really think about it, it it's very difficult to create an army quickly. An army is a function of traditions, regulations, um, institutions. Um, it, it goes down to you know where you dig the latrines, or you know how you get promoted, or how you have a commissary, or how you have a hospital system. The Continental Army is a is a real uh, work in progress. Um, the average experience of a soldier in the Continental Army by the by the spring of '76 is less than six months. The average experience of a British soldier is over 70 years. Um, and so they are not professionally a match for the British Army. And they believe, and Washington keeps sending these words out from his headquarters, that men of virtue committed to their cause can defeat uh, mercenaries. And um, that's their major belief. And while that is idealistically attractive, it turns out, not to be very correct. Did Washington actually believe it? Good question. Um, he keeps saying it to the troops, but his letters to um, his brothers and to some of the people in the Congress uh, suggest that he thinks the Army needs, needs to be completely um, professionalized, made into a, an Army much like the British with people that serve enduring enlistments and not just one year, and uh, but there's not time to do that um, it's, it, because the invasion of New York is is happening. He has to move the army in the spring down to uh, Long Island and Manhattan. And um, uh, in addition to his military problems with the army, it turns out Manhattan's an archipelago and is almost un- indefensible. So that whoever controls the seas controls the battle, and we all know who's going to control the seas. So. It's going to be a disaster in the late summer of 1776 for the American army. One of the things you talk about in the battle in New York is that were it not for the mistakes that William Howe made, either intentionally or by accident, that in fact it could have been over right there. Yes, it could. Um, there were, as I said, this, the British controlled the, the seas, and they they have Washington trapped um, uh on Long Island first, on Brooklyn Heights, and there's a miraculous escape at night in August 30th. It's almost, it's the American version of Gun, Dunkirk, and um, it's, uh, everything has to go right. The, the currents have to be right. There has to be a nor'easter coming in. There's a fog coming in. Uh, it's one of the most important military actions of the war, because if you don't get them out off, off uh, Long Island, they're trapped, and they're going to either be captured or, or annihilated. And, um, and the same thing exists on Manhattan because they could plug the top of Manhattan, could the Brits, and um, and there's no way the Americans could get off. And 
The question is why they don't do that. And uh, some of the British officers suggest doing that, and um, especially General Clinton, the second-in-command. But William Howe, the uh, military commander on the ground, his brother Richard is the naval commander, and really don't want to destroy the Continental Army. Um, they want to mess, they want to rough it up, as they say. They want to demonstrate to it that they can't win the war. But then they want to negotiate a peace. That's their biggest goal. They really, or as members of Parliament, both of them had voted against the aggressive policy of uh, George III. They didn't want to make this into a, a genocidal war. And, um, and they regarded the Americans as their cousins, as they called them. And therefore, they made decisions in this battle to let them off the hook. Uh, later on, it proves disastrous. Um, but uh, at the time, they think that they're going to win the war anyway. In some measure, it proves disastrous because of the strategy that, that Washington evolved, which was to realize that, in fact, Howe was right. He couldn't win, and his goal became simply not to lose and to protract this as long as possible. Absolutely right. And before that, as he's heading towards New York, he has this view of battle, which is almost medieval, and it's certainly honor-driven, namely that... If the enemy presents himself, you are honor-bound to face him. And it's, it's almost like a summons to duel. You cannot, with honor, res refuse such a thing. Now, this is not smart, and it leads to disaster in uh, Long Island and Manhattan, as you have suggested. Um, but as a result of that, um, Washington begins a thought process. It doesn't happen all at once, but he begins a thought process that leads him to a fundamentally different strategy in the war. And that is a, what he calls a war of posts. That he's not going to engage the enemy except on the most favorable terms, and he's always going to have an exit strategy. Um, and it, as again you say, is based on a fundamental strategic insight. Namely, the British have to win the war. The Americans just have to not lose it. And as long as he protracts the war eventually the Brits are going to just decide it's not worth it and go back home again. And that's eventually what happens. Talk about the ways in which that happens. Eventually, Howe is relieved of command and, in fact, called on the carpet back in, in Britain, and, and others take over. Talk a little about that. Well, uh, yeah, Henry Clinton takes over event, uh, in, from Howe in 1777. Um, this is beyond, I, I look ahead at this a right. bit in the book, but it, I don't deal with it in detail, and um, in some ways, um, the British begin to realize that um, their chances of winning the war were greatest at the very beginning in this New York campaign, and once they lose that, or once they lose that opportunity, and then the French come into the war in 1778, and the British have to spread their sources, uh, forces around in the Caribbean and Europe, um, they begin to realize that... Um, that this is a losing proposition, and the opposition back in England starts to mount, especially in London, because the merchants want this war to end. So that, um, and they begin to develop the explanation for the defeat that is makes the house a scapegoat. Um, that if only the house, it's sort of like what we did in Vietnam with uh, with Westmoreland, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, uh, but um, the. the the, from the American point of view, the, the war is a roller coaster because the army almost dissolves every year because you have to depend on new enlistments. And, um, and so it's, 
from the American point of view, victory doesn't look as inevitable as defeat begins to look for the Brits um, in 1777-78. When, when the Brits, and how in particular initially, realize what Washington's strategy is, what, what do they do? Um, they decide to capture Philadelphia and force him to defeat the defendant. And, um, and they fight two battles, one at Brandywine, one in Germantown. Um, uh, but the colonists are able to retreat from this and then send, set up themselves for winter headquarters in Valley Forge. Um, uh, he's hoping to lure uh, Washington into a uh, sort of final battle and Washington will fight, but he will not. He will always retreat uh, or withdraw uh, if and when the need arises. Germantown is almost a draw. Brandywine is a defeat for the Americans. Talk a little bit about the tide when the tide begins to turn. It really begins to turn once the American army gets off uh, the, the New York archipelago, because once the tides, once. The Army has survived a near-death experience um, in the Continental Army. Now, you can say that the uh, Christmas raid uh, crossing the Delaware at Trenton is a, certain, a, a version of the Doolittle's raid on Tokyo in World War II. It, it doesn't have a huge strategic significance, but it has a huge psychological significance for the Americans. Um, and from that point forward... Um, the war is, uh, you know, is going to be a, a marathon, and um, and as long as the Americans sustain the Continental Army, they really can't lose. And as long as that's the case, the British can't win. Come back to the political side of this, and as these battles were going on, talk about the political attitudes that were were changing at the time. The um, the response of the uh, people like Adams and Franklin and uh, Washington to the threat of the defeat of the Continental Army is, uh, well, they are defeated on Long Island. And, but Franklin and Adams meet with Richard Howe and say, look, this doesn't make any difference. You can destroy the Continental Army as far as we're concerned, and, um, and we'll just raise another army. Um, we'll find another Washington. Um, you're up against a demographic. You have to defeat the American population, not just one army. Um, so they are in it all in uh, for, for, for the end. And... Um, whether that attitude existed in the countryside to the same degree or depth is hard to know. I think that we know that about 19 to 20 percent of the population is loyalist. Um, the other 80 percent is divided between very committed patriots and people who are more lukewarm. Um, and uh, the, the British never completely understand how to win over that group of people. Um, it's hard to do. Um, and I think to some extent our own experience in Vietnam and now the Middle East makes us more aware of the, the dilemma the British face in this particular conflict. Um, and um, uh, so politically, it, the, the people the, at, the, at the Continental Congress level, the resolve never goes away. We're not going to re reconsider this decision. We're not going to uh, go back and um, and remains committed to winning the war at all costs. The support for the Continental Army, however, is is reduced. Uh, nobody wants to. They protect their individual states more than they do the, uh, the, the 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 country at large. They invest in the state militia, not in the um, 
not in the Continental Army, and there's a withdrawal of commitment to the Army throughout the rest of the war. So it kept on, kept on life support. Right, and that's one of the tragedies, I mean, beyond the summer of 1776 that you talk about. It's one of the tragedies that Washington dealt with after the war, the, the, the way in which the Continental Army was looked at. That's right. They were... It, it is difficult for us to understand this. It, it, it seems to me to be an utter disgrace. But um, as soon as it's clear that the war is over, they just want the Continental Army to go away. Um, they don't want to pay them any pensions. They don't even pay them their back pay. These are the guys that won the war. And, um, and it, uh, they're, they're treated as if they're a bunch of beggars uh, who just need to be sent to the, uh, to the debtor's prison or someplace. And... Um, um, Washington is, you know, just, just he's so upset about this. But there's not a heck of a, he does his best to try to get the army as much as he can, but it's not going to work. Um, they believe, you know, that they have this opposition to any kind of standing army, and they and they develop the myth of the militia. They the militia really won the war, which is an absolute uh, joke. Um, uh, uh, and so the the real heroes of this particular conflict really never got their due, and and are and were not given the uh, the historical uh, tribute that they deserve. And that sets up so much of the battle that goes on after the war between the Federalists and and the states' rights folks. That's right. That's the reason. It's one of the expressions of the belief that we are not the the first sentence of the, of the most famous speech in American history. You know, Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth in this continent a new nation is historically incorrect. They didn't really bring forth a new nation. They brought forth a, a series of sovereign states provisionally united to win the war, then go their separate ways. And uh, so that support for the uh, Continental Army is, is almost non-existent after the, in, in, as you get towards the end of the war. And it's, it's a miracle it stays alive. And in many ways, the war exacerbated those divisions. Instead of bringing the, the country together or bringing together what would become a country, the war in many ways and the attitudes towards it exacerbated all of this. Well, I, the way I put it is, Jeff, is that the war exposes that there are these very real local and state-based uh, uh, loyalties that override any larger commitment. And what you got to remember is most Americans were born, lived out their lives, and died within a 20-mile radius. They don't have cell phones either. And so one's sense of allegiance is very local. And the commitment to a continental army is, is a commitment to something larger. Um, but it's a commitment for something larger for a specific purpose, to win the war. And once that's over, once that commit, once that it it completely evaporates and goes back to its local uh, origins, and um, and that's what happens at the end of the war, and what makes the Articles of Confederation, the form of government, not really a government at all. It's a it's a treaty among thirteen separate nations, um, each of whom regard themselves as sovereign. What is also remarkable about this period is the group of people that came together from from Washington on down. I mean, you were talking before about those that said, well, if Washington goes, somebody else will replace him. But it wouldn't have been that easy to replace Washington or a no, lot of these guys. Uh, it's, I, it's one of the overarching questions that's always haunted me. I sort of call it the Wilkes-Barre question, meaning the, the city of Wilkes-Barre now has a slightly smaller population than the or slightly larger population, excuse me, than Virginia 
1776. But if we go down to Wilkes-Barre now, we're going to find Washington, Adams, excuse me, Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, George Mason, John Marshall. No, we're not going to find them. And uh, now at some level, you've got to argue that theoretically such leadership is present in latent form there. But it it comes to the surface in the revolutionary era, and we get this 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 gallery of people that become the greatest political leaders in American history. And um, uh, now they're all flawed. They they make mistakes. Um, there are tragedies involved. Slavery certainly the biggest one. Um, uh, but that all said, they create the, the ideas and the institutions under which we continue to live, which is quite an achievement. And um, I still can't give you a good answer as to why that happens. And I've been studying them for 40 years. Joseph Ellis, the book is Revolutionary Summer, The Birth of American Independence. Joe, as always, I thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's my pleasure. Ask me whatever you want. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll come right back. <laughs> 